you got stuck with the youth pastor tonight, so I'm sorry about that. It is my normal time slot, that's right. We usually have youth group at this time, so um, we would have just got done playing a game probably, but yeah. Well, welcome. Thanks for uh, listening to me. Uh, you probably didn't know that, or maybe you did. But um, yeah, tonight we're going to be talking about John 3.16. Uh if you're like me, you probably grew up with this verse. Um, but about a year ago or so, I was actually given the task to give this in front of one of my theology classes. And it's a lot different in an academic setting than it would be here. But, um, yeah, I just, looking at this passage, there's a lot more than meets the eye. And so I'm going to read it, and then we are going to pray, and I'm going to jump into my sermon. But, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Well, Father, you are, you are faithful. You are good. You are majesty. You are Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And as we come together uh, tonight in a different time slot, Lord, you are still faithful. As LJ said, you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And we still get to worship the same God. How cool is that? How amazing is that? How amazing is it that you, get to send, that you sent your son here to die for us, yet we did not deserve it? And I just ask that as you pray right now, that you just pray that the Lord may speak to you in a new way about this passage. And if you would, please pray that I'd be a vessel of his, that I would speak his words, not my own. Lord, you are good and you are faithful. And we thank you for this time. Thank you for this gathering. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, it is argued that the, w one of the best college football quarterbacks ever is Tim Tebow. Now you may know, know this about Tim Tebow, but Tim Tebow is famous for a few things, one of which is putting eye black on his face. Now, it's not very different than most quarterbacks, but he put John 3.16 on his eye black. Uh, they ended up winning the national championship game after he did this, and then the next day he found out that 94 million people searched up John 3.16 as a result. Three years later to the day, on January 8th, 2012, he ended up playing the Pittsburgh Steelers, and he beat them. That's my team, so it's still a little, it hurts a little bit. But it was cool because it was three years to the day that he had wrote John 3.16 on his eye black. And the media caught this, they made the connection, and they found out actually that that same day, Tebow threw for 316 passing yards, he averaged 31.6 yards per completion, CBS's final rating of the game was 31.6, and Pittsburgh's final time of possession was 31 minutes and 6 seconds. Making this connection, Twitter and Facebook made John 3.16 the number one thing that people were searching for, and 90 million people ended up searching up John 3.16. So, why do I tell you this? Because 185 million people ended up searching John 3.16. 
And Tim Tebow was like, how do 185 million people not know what John 3.16 is? Like, for me, that was my first verse I memorized in Teacher Kim's Sunday school class downstairs. Like, everyone knows John 3.16, right? Where, regardless of whether they know it or not, 185 million people could have looked up the gospel for the very first time. How remarkable is that? And you might ask, why does that matter again? Well, if 185 million people are looking it up, it begs the question, what does the verse actually say? And on top of that, I think even more importantly, why does the verse even matter to the whole sanction of Scripture? I think if you're looking at it from an unbeliever's standpoint, if they looked at it for the first time, they got to see the gospel for the first time. The ESV study Bible commentary says that John 3.16 is the most famous summary of the whole gospel in the entire Bible. Now, if you're on the other end of the extreme, if you've grown up in church your whole life, if you're a Christian, you've probably memorized this for a gold star or something. I know I did. But I think it still matters because it begs the question, have we just glossed over it our entire lives or have we actually examined the whole entire passage as a whole? Tonight, I want to examine the whole entire passage because it's important. Because as I looked at this, as Lane said, hey, James, go give a sermon. He was like, you can choose whatever passage you want. I said, dude, that's a gutsy move, telling the youth pastor he can speak <laughs> on whatever he wants. I mean, I could have done some end time stuff. I'm like, this is the year Jesus is coming back. And like, no, I'm not going to do that. That'd be, I don't think I'd get another chance to speak. But I felt convicted by this passage. It made me realize, do I actually love Jesus? Do I actually believe in him the way he wants me to believe in him? Do I set him up as my foundation for everything I do in my life? Or if I just glossed over this and just memorized a verse because I was told to? Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you are here and you're saying, okay, I've memorized this verse, but I know nothing else about the passage. And maybe you've looked at it with all the depth of the passage and you know it like the uh, front and back of your hand, and you know that Jesus is the Son of God, and he came to die for you. Well, I hope that you see that he loves you, and hopefully you can conform to his way of how we should love one another. Maybe you're here tonight, and you've never heard this passage. That's a great introductory message for a non-believer. Regardless, this verse has a ton to offer, and in the light of the whole passage, we might miss some things, but I don't think I want to miss the unexpected news of what Jesus was saying. And in light of the unexpected king in the series we've been in, I want to talk about how it was unexpected for Jesus to come and save the entire world. So as we evaluate this text, we're going to see two things. One was God's plan for salvation. And God's plan for salvation was not just a plan for the nation of Israel, but it was for the entire world. He saw that evil and sin were corrupting everybody, so he sent his son down. And that brings us to what we're going to also see, and that's the sacrificial love. And his plan for salvation stems from that sacrificial love. And this love of, that we see that God gives us transcends all, under, all understanding. And we ought to conform to that standard of love because it's life-changing. Jesus is not just the unexpected king. They gave us hope, joy, peace, and love. I mean, he is those things. But he also was the unexpected king who was the sacrificial king. So as we look at John 3, if you have your Bibles, feel free to open to John 3. If you're taking notes, please feel, to take no feel free to take notes on only that screen tonight. 
but I do do a lot of slides, so you might have some notes to take. Um, let's look at the passage. Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus, he's labeled here as a Pharisee. And a Pharisee was one of the Jewish teachers of the time. They were very zealous of the law, and they wanted to get it right down to the T. And so Nicodemus not only was a Pharisee, but he was also one of the rulers of the Jews. In some translations, it says he was the teacher of Israel. This is a great distinction because it's not just one of the religious leaders at the time, but he's one of the people that was part of the great Sanhedrin. Now, the great Sanhedrin was the supreme court of ancient Israel. Now, similar to how the U.S. has a lot of lower courts, there are also a lot of different lower Sanhedrins. But Nicodemus was part of the great Sanhedrin, which included 70 different wise sages or other Pharisees and the high priest. So he was kind of a big deal. And so he had the power to make final decisions on anyone in regards to the Jewish law, including people that were false teachers or prophets. And now this matters because he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, okay? Now a Pharisee, a member of the great Sanhedrin, coming to Jesus in the night. Usually in the rest of the Gospels, we see them kind of be pretty confrontational with Jesus just up front. But he comes in the, in the night. There's actually three strong possibilities as to why he did that. And the first one as, is that as a member of the great Sanhedrin, he was possibly trying to form an investigation against Jesus and what he was teaching. You know, at this point, Jesus was creating a lot of controversy. In John 2, he already had a lot of miracles that he was doing, including uh, turning water into wine. And also, in, on top of that, he was uh, teaching. And so the Pharisees, they didn't understand it. And it made, it look, made them look a little bad. Another possibility was that he may have been intrigued to have a conversation with them. So he wanted a conversation that would be uninterrupted by others. This could be assumed for one of two things. One, he calls him a rabbi. And a rabbi is a really important teacher. So for Nicodemus to come and say, hey, rabbi, it shows that he is intrigued. He wants to learn from this teacher. He also, later in the passage, makes it very clear that Jesus was from God, and that the things he, were, he was saying and things he was doing were only things that people from God could do. So he shows uh, that he's interested, that he's intrigued. The last reason is that he may have also wanted to see whether or not he was for or against Jesus. Like I said, the Pharisees, uh, being the teachers of the law, really liked things being exactly how they thought it should be. And so... They were, he was trying to maybe figure out whether he hated Jesus or wanted to possibly follow him. Because all the Pharisees at the time, they were starting to say, okay, I object to Jesus. I might hate what Jesus is saying. Now, they did not hate him because he was nice or inclusive. They weren't saying, oh, my goodness, this Jesus guy, he's just way too nice. Like, oh, man, we might have to get him. We might have to put him to death because of this one. No, they weren't doing that. They were, it was pretty clear that they were wanting to possibly put Jesus to death based on the things he was teaching. The Gospel Coalition says the Jewish leaders may have objected to Jesus' far-reaching compassion, but they wanted him dead because they, he thought himself to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. It wasn't because of his compassion, but it was because of the things he was teaching. See, that's the impact that Jesus has. He either makes you want to follow him and love him, or he makes you hate him. Lee Strobel 
comes to mind. Lee Strobel was a um, legal editor for the Chicago Tribune in the early 80s, which is not a small feat. The Chicago Tribune is a very well-established, really well-known paper. Um, and at the time, he was also an atheist. However, his wife, who was also an atheist, ended up converting to Christianity. Now, as a very true and loyal atheist, he hated this. He didn't want his family to not be an atheist family. So he said, you know what? I'm going to do everything I can to stop her. I'm going to do a, a full investigation on whether or not Jesus came back from the dead. And so he did that. And he ended up finding out that Jesus did come back from the dead. So he gave his life to Jesus. What once was hatred for this guy that he thought was a fairy tale turned to love. And his love turned to worship. And his worship was for a lowly, humble carpenter that made an impact 2,000 years ago. Now, it's not certain what Nicodemus' reasoning for going and talking to Jesus was, but I'm certain that he saw that this guy, a lowly carpenter, is making an impact in a small little town of Nazareth, okay? What good comes out of Nazareth, you might think. But anyways, as he comes to Jesus, we see that he has a hard time understanding Jesus' teachings in verses 3 through 10. Um, and Jesus is really clear. He's like, dude, these are earthly things. Like, being born again is not that hard of a concept. And Nicodemus is like, bro, but how do you go back in your mom's womb and come out again? And he's like, no, that's not the point, Nicodemus. Like, you're just missing it. You're missing the mark by just a little bit. So Jesus teaches him. He's like, you got to be born of water and spirit. And Nicodemus, which you may not know because we tend to look at this with American eyes, but when we look at it from the standpoint of a Jew, we see, holy cow. That's humiliating to be born of water. Because to a Jew, to be born of water was only something Gentiles did in order to be a part of the Jewish faith. And so for Nicodemus, he probably hears this and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I have to humiliate myself in order to follow you? I have to be born again by putting myself into water? And then on top of that, I have to be born of the Spirit? The Spirit's this far-off um, overpowerful. Uh, he's God's spirit. I never get to see him. To Jews, the spirit, our Holy Spirit, could not be uh, tangible. He couldn't, you couldn't have a relationship with him. He was far off. He was majesty. So for Nicodemus, that does, it just doesn't make sense, which is interesting, because in the very beginning of the passage, he's the teacher of Israel, and he comes to Jesus the rabbi that no one knows where he gets his authority from, and he has no idea what Jesus is talking about at all. And it's interesting to see, because if the teacher of Israel doesn't understand, how in the world is anyone else supposed to get what he's saying? If the Pharisee can't teach, then how can the people of Israel be taught? And so it's a direct correlation to these people aren't really in tune with who God is. They haven't been in tune for quite a while. So Jesus comes and says, you know what? You can't understand these things because I teach you heavenly things and only someone from heaven can understand. And these things from heaven are talked about in verses 14 through 15 when Jesus talks about how the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. And he talks about, it makes a direct correlation, a comparison to uh, the the brazen serpent in numbers that Moses lifts up. If you don't know the story, uh, all the Israelites are bitten in the wilderness, and they're going to die. 
But then God tells Moses, lift up the serpent. And if they look up at the serpent, then they'll be saved. And so as Jesus says, I'm going to be like the serpent. I'm going to be like the serpent and be lifted up, and everyone's going to be saved. Nicodemus knows exactly what he's talking about. Because the serpent represents three things. It's one, God's way of saving men. Two, if you place your faith in it, you'll be saved. And three, it's also God's judgment and reconciliation of sin. So as Jesus begins to teach these heavenly things to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus starts to realize, I don't know anything. And for the first time in his life, he becomes a disciple. He becomes someone who's being taught. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in their commentary says, Nicodemus sinks into a disciple who has found his true teacher. Instead of having to be the great teacher of Israel, he gets to be taught by the true teacher of the whole world. How miraculous is that? How amazing is that? It is a fair statement, I would say, to assume that uh, Nicodemus is in awe of these things, the things that Jesus is teaching. I wouldn't say that Nicodemus is either for Jesus or against Jesus. I don't think the text necessarily says that or not. But I think Nicodemus is starting to realize this guy's not just a prophet. He's not just a rabbi. If If he is who he says he is, If he claims to be all these things, he probably might be the son of God. Which is where we get to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I'm going to leave you with three things that I think are really important about this passage. The first one is God, well, all three of these are about God's plan. The first one is God's plan includes saving the whole world. And for Nicodemus, who is a Jew, up until this point, he only thinks that God cares about the nation of Israel. And so for Nicodemus, he's probably thinking to himself, how in the world is he going to save the whole world if he only cares about the people of Israel? So this is unexpected to Nicodemus, hence unexpected king, right? The entire world is what Jesus came to save, not just the nation of Israel. But the entire world also refers to everyone who's not going to accept Jesus. So not only is he not coming back just for the Jews, and he's not only coming back for the rest of the world and who accepts him, but he's coming back and dying for everyone who might not even accept him. That's unexpected love. That's sacrificial love. It comes out of the strongest form of love that we have in the Greek, which is agape. And this is described as divine love. There's three other kinds of love in the Greek, and it does not even compare to those, which is familial love, brotherly love, and erotic or romantic love. God's love for the whole world is not just an infatuation or a feeling he has for them, but rather it's something that surpasses all understanding. It's so great. It's so big. But it also, in this passage, it's used in the verb form, which, sorry to Greek out on you here, but <laughs> it's important to note that it's in the verb form. It doesn't mean he, he just has a love for everybody. He did something about the love. He sent his son down because he loves them so much. Love is an action that God did. It's sacrificial. He's the sacrificial king. The second thing I think we can take away is that God's plan includes having faith in him. That whoever believes in him, 
And so I think a couple things we have to note is that he's not forcing us into this love. He's offering this love. He's acting out, or not acting out, but he's showing us that he cares for us so much that he's sending his son, but we don't have to accept it. Love cannot be forced. If I force my wife to marry me, that would be kidnapping, not actual love. Love cannot be forced. But he wants us to accept him. So he did everything in his power to try to convince us, try to show us that he loves us so much that he wants us to love him in return. But I think we, ne- we need to not uh, misconstrue what it means to actually believe in him. Some people think, okay, if I just accept him, if I understand that he died for me, then I'm good to go. But that's not what Jesus is asking us to do. He's asking us to place a trust in him that is like no other. It's not just a belief in the fact that he died on the cross. It's a belief, it's not just a belief that he died on the cross. It's a belief in him that the cross actually did something for us. Charles Blondin, um, who was a um, daredevil, he would walk across tight ropes. Um, he did this on the, like all across the Niagara Falls, okay? That's not him like on the Niagara Falls, but like it's, it shows. That guy on his back is his manager. And so he got his manager on his back, and he walked across the whole Niagara Falls. When he got to the other side, there was a crowd of people uh, waiting for him. And when he got there, he dropped off uh, his manager and looked at a guy who had the same stature as his manager and said, hey, man, you, do you think I can carry you across to the other side on my back? And he said, sure. I just saw you do it. Why would I think you can't do that? He said, okay, well, then get on my back and let's go. And he said, no, I didn't say you should do it. I said you could do it. And he said, exactly, you're not going to do it. Jesus is saying the same thing here. It's one thing to understand that he died on the cross. It's one thing to understand that, yeah, he may have took the sins of uh, the world away by dying on the cross and rising three days later. It's another to put your trust in him. It's another to say, I'm going to lay down my life I'm going to suffer like he suffered. I'm going to conform to his ways. I'm going to follow him. It's one thing to believe that he did it. It's another to believe in him to save us. The last thing is God's plan includes reconciliation from evil. Sometimes we don't like talking about this part of the verse, but it says, shall not perish, but have eternal life. The verse, John could have easily written in, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. But he's very clear, and he said, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That means there's something that you could perish from. And that thing that we're talking about is the reality of hell. I know the youth pastor gets up here and talks about hell. You probably should listen up, I guess. I don't know. But the reality, of the, re- the reality of hell is what those who do not believe in must face. And that's not easy to, like, comprehend. It's not easy to, like, strap up and try to sign on the dotted line and say that you're a Christian, right? But not believing in God, unfortunately, has a side effect or a consequence. D.A. Carson says, The text does not say God so loved the world that he overlooked our sin. Rather, he so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for our sins. 
but his love does not eradicate the reality of hell. Hell, unfortunately, still exists. But that's not the main purpose of the text. It's not about a God who wants to send everybody to hell. It's about a God who loved us so much that he sent us to help us escape from what the reality of hell is. I think the misconception is that God is that God who's just like, you're going, you're going, I don't like you, I don't like you, all this stuff. That's really not true. God loves us so much that he doesn't want to see any of us perish. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. And repentance is only through the one who can take the sins of the world away. And that's through Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, who came down, God incarnate, in the form of man, to go and die on the cross. He was perfect, and he didn't have to, but he loved you so much that he wanted to, and he chose to. And what, in verse 17 and 18, kind of give us a re, uh, recap of what happens to us if we believe in him. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus didn't come down to condemn you. He came to save you. Unfortunately, if we don't accept that, then there is that consequence. He doesn't want you to fall into that consequence, so he wants you to accept his eternal life that he's given you through his love. And it's not just a free ticket to heaven. It's following and living a life that follows after the one who sacrificed all for us. On September 29th, 2006, Michael Monsoor and three other SEAL snipers um, watched from their rooftop post for enemy activity in Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Um, and suddenly, a grenade was thrown onto this rooftop, and it bounced off Monsoor's chest and laid on the rooftop. Now, Mansoor noted that he could have easily just jumped off and um, ran away and escaped. However, his three other sniper friends, SEALs, uh, were sitting down and they had no way of escaping. And so, um, actually his friends noted that Mansoor did what he had been trained to do. And he jumped on and embraced the grenade and took the blow. And although his three SEAL friends uh, were injured, they survived. But unfortunately, Mansoor did not. And so, to this day, his teammates speak very highly of him. And they strive to be like their buddy Mike in everything he did, in the life that he lived. And that if it were not for his sacrifice, they wouldn't be there. So they, they live every day just like Mikey did, sacrificially and with love. And as we hear this story of true sacrificial love, something stands out about how his friends reacted. They didn't just say, cool, he, I get to be here now, he did not, and just keep living their life. Instead, they say, you know what? I'm here because he sacrificed his life. He didn't have to, but he wanted to. 
And so I get to live every single day, every new day, because of him and what he did. So I'm going to live it just like he did, sacrificially and with love. And as followers of Jesus, the same price was paid on our behalf. Without him, we would have to pay the penalty all by ourselves. And let me just say, we are very incapable of that. But Jesus paid the ultimate price. So we don't have to take on death, but rather we can have eternal life. Because he did, and he's a loving God, he wants us to love him in return. And sometimes we don't understand maybe what that love is. It's not just gentleness, which that's a part of it. It's not just going to church, which that's a part of it. It's not just putting on the Christian face and saying, I'm good. It's a life of surrender fully to the one who surrendered his life for us. Maybe that's in your marriage. Maybe that's in your friendships. Maybe that's the way you treat your kids. Maybe it's the way you treat people you disagree with. Regardless, loving people is not a checklist. It's not about how can I be a better person. It's about how do I truly embrace the man, the God who came down in flesh to die for me. How can I embrace the life he lived here? So do you know him? Do you know the true teacher? Do you want to sink down into the form of a disciple and follow and partake in what he has to say? Because I believe he's uh, teaching a love that transcends all other love. And we can't comprehend it. It's not about knowing all the Greek words. It's not knowing about all the different facets about Bible and church history. It's not about that. It's good to understand those things. I love understanding those things. But it's not just about that. It's about how do I live my life? Do I build my life on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ? Or do I just say, yeah, he's a cool guy. I would hope that you'd want to live sacrificially just like he he did. And that brings us to communion. I'm going to invite LJ back up, and we're going to sing one more song after we take this. But um, I want you to ask yourself a few questions as you take this before we take it together. Um, The first one was, what does his body sacrifice mean to you? What does it mean to you? What does his blood that he sacrificed truly represent? And how in this new year do I transform my life to conform to the God who sacrificed all for me? The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took, uh, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the cup.
Father, you are faithful. And you ask us to just accept you, place our trust in you. And we get that amazing opportunity because of your sacrifice for us. I pray that as we worship in this last song, we could reflect deeply on how we can build our life on you, how in this new year we could transition and transform into a new follower of you, Lord, and how we can embrace love and how we can truly be the body of Christ together, Lord. Thank you for everything you do. It's in your name we pray.